Alright, if I could time travel anywhere, it'd probably be to the Italian Renaissance. Just because there was just such a like burst of culture and innovation during that time. And I would probably be somewhere either in France or in the Czech Republic during the 1920s because my one of my favorite artists, uh, Alphonse Mucha, was starting to, uh, the Art Nouveau kind of style around that period. Just everything was bumping and starting to rise up. <laughs> it's on, like a fun time to go back. I would probably go back to when plants ruled the earth. Think about how many cool fruits there would be. Oh yeah, no, so if I uh, if I could travel anywhere in time, I'd go into the future, maybe three, four hundred years, so they're gonna have much cooler shit in the future, so there'd be lots of fun things to do, and everyone I know will be dead, so there'll be no ties or remnants, I won't have to worry about anybody. Three hundred years future, the family lines will all be muddled. Yeah. I'll just be able to be completely on my own, only worry about myself and have fun. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus with my dad to go to Dallas. One time, when I was little, uh, my dad a, ran it. When I was little, my dad church. A man came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's just a story. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. His theory of time in a vehicle traveling nearly the speed of light, the Earth has aged nearly 700 years since we left it. Well, we've aged hardly at all. We're going to attempt time travel. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour. Bucks capacitor. Oh boy. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Every week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. We want to thank everybody who subscribed to the podcast and all of those of you who have reached out to us on Twitter or been kind enough to leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. We would very much appreciate it if you would run over there and do that whenever you have a chance. It really helps us grow and reach new listeners. Yeah, spread the word. We like doing this way too much. Yeah, as evidenced by our recording binge that we've been on recently. Today... We're going to take a little different turn and hit some kind of different urban legends that are passed around about time travel. Right, and we're going to start with one of my favorite examples of how urban legends work. It's a very good lesson in the mechanics of an urban legend that can be traced to a single source, and that is the story of Rudolph Fence. And no, it's not a Christmas story. Sounds like a Nazi. He probably was. He's actually not a Nazi. He was an unfortunate man who was hit by a taxi cab in New York City. That has to happen all the time. Right. Uh, it seems a very unremarkable thing, right? So what makes it so remarkable? Well, Mr. Fence's appearance was a bit uncharacteristic for the time. This supposedly happened in 1950, and compared to those of the day, he looked a little antiquitous. He had 
thick sideburns and suit that did not look like the suits that other men were wearing. John Hamm said, dude, what were you thinking when he walked by? He looked more like a Victorian than a mid-century man. So it wasn't just what he looked like that made people think that he was not from this time. Because I'm sure people dress in weird ways all the time in New York City. Especially in New York City. No, it was the contents of his pockets. Also, because of course, you know, you get hit by a cab in New York City, people are going to rifle through your pockets, right? The good people of New York City found some interesting effects that caused them to scratch their heads. I can't imagine the interesting effects they would find in a strange person in New York City. So in his pocket, he had a copper token for a beer worth five cents, but no one was familiar with the name of the saloon that was printed on this token or the idea of getting a beer for five cents. He also had a bill of care for a horse and a carriage washing from a livery stable on Lexington Avenue. He liked a nice and clean horse and buggy. A bit different than the mode of conveyance most popular at the time, which was New York City Cab, by which he met his end. But that's a different matter entirely. The address for this stable was not listed in any address book. And he also had about $70 worth of banknotes, which were old and not used anymore, and a business card with the name of Rudolph Fence and a Fifth Avenue address. And he also had a letter that had been mailed to this address from Philadelphia, dated June 1876. That is odd. Why would this guy have all these things? Well, odder still is the fact that none of them showed any wear or signs of aging. So this had to raise some eyebrows in the police investigating this. And one of those officers was named Officer Ream, and he inquired after Fence and found that he died five years earlier, but his widow was still alive. However, she was living in Florida. So Ream, being the diligent detective that he was, he contacted her, and he found out that, yes, her husband had died five years earlier, but her husband's father had disappeared in June of 1876, when he was 29 years old. Very curious. Apparently, Mr. Fence had left left the house for a nice little evening walk and never come home. And they made efforts to find him and nobody could until 1950 when he was hit by a cab. Police officer, while investigating this, found that missing persons report and realized that the description matched the man hit by the car. So obviously time travel, right? Must have been the same person. Yeah. And that's what everyone likes to say. The story was circulated as fact until the early 2000s. And then a folklorist became interested and decided to trace down the origins of this mysterious, oft-repeated tale. And he found out that it was actually a very logical source. This sounds like science fiction, right? Definitely. We have a person appearing out of nowhere and mysteriously. No one can figure out who he is. And they find out that he may have been a time traveler from the past. Well, it sounds like science fiction because it is science fiction. It was originally proffered as such in a collection of stories called I'm Scared, which was published in 1951. Author Jack Finney. So that's the author of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes, one and the same had penned this story as part of a 12-story series about time and time travel, where the main character becomes afraid that he has accidentally leapt through time and starts collecting stories of time travel, which sounds like a great concept to me. 
Yeah, I kind of really want to read this book. Me too. But this is the last story. Apparently, it resonated most with people, I think probably because of the precise details, like the things that were found in his pockets. That's so striking. Right. It sounds like the kind of details that are included in a story to make it sound more real, Mm -hmm. like in our urban legends we always talk about. And so this story, which was written as fiction, was repeated as fact and took off and had a life of its own. Now, you would think that after someone comes forward and says, hey guys, don't worry about the whole Rudolph fence thing. I've got it covered. It was fiction. It would be done, right? Of course not. Of course not. This is the internet we're talking about. So in 2007, a person came forward and said, I was doing research in the Berlin News Archives, which is so ambiguous. And I found this exact story printed in a newspaper and it predates the publication of this short story. No way. Right? So now that's being repeated. So even when we know it's fiction, it's so good. We just can't let go of it and we need to make it fact again. So now there's a new level of credibility to this urban legend. Even though we could not find a primary source for that. As much as we searched and searched and searched. Maybe we should go to the Berlin News Archives. To the bat plane. (laughs) Field trip! Because really, what do you use a bat plane for besides field trips? So this is the first story of time travel that we're going to cover on today's episode. There's so many different versions of time travel that have made it into the urban legend sphere. And one of the ones I love is a man, priest, a monk, who invented an amazing device called the chronovisor. Is it a beer? Is it a monk who made a beer called the chronovisor? (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not. Because that might have been a little more realistic. But this was Father Pellegrino Ernetti. Is this a real person or is this part of the legend? This is a real, live person. And he was a scholar of archaic music. Oh. He was also an exorcist. Oh. In Italy. Also a philosopher and a physics study graduate. And he was studying the luminous energy and sound that objects emanate being recorded in the environment. So he was researching with another priest, Father Agostino Ganelli, at the Catholic University of Milan, trying to filter harmonics out of Gregorian chants. When they heard the voice of Gamelli's late father speaking to them on the wire recorder they were using. And so this piqued Father Ernetti's interest. And he started postulating that this luminous energy, the energy that we all create every day, is recorded by the environment. Uh-huh. And if he could just figure out a way to access this, he'd be able to access the past. Okay, so this is like kind of stone tape theory? Like we all leave impressions in the environment? Right, that's kind of the paranormal idea. But there is a little bit, a little bit, of scientific idea behind this, something called acoustic archaeology. Okay, yes, this was on an episode of CSI. It was on like Mythbusters, a lot of people have investigated this. So like... Okay, I'm going to tell you about the CSI, and you tell me if Grissom was right or not. So they had a murder that happened conveniently in a pottery class. Okay. And they realized that the guy had been running a brush along the pot on the pottery wheel. Okay, you're on to something. Okay. And then they were able to play back a recording of the murder because the brush had, like, picked up the acoustics and put it down in Mm. the... Right, like a turntable would do, or a wax cylinder. Wax cylinder is what I, yeah, okay. And so that is the basic idea behind it. So Grissom was right. 
As per usual. Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) But that was the idea that you can go and take pieces of, like, Greek pottery and be able to pick up the frequencies on them and gather what was being said as it was being made, like, on a spinning wheel. But they think that this is just out in the world, out in the ether. Right, and well, actually, the acoustic archaeology has never really been done effectively. Did it on CSI? Well, besides that. Okay. They've never been able to pick up true people speaking although some people think they can pick up certain sounds and things like that that's what we call matrixing and so he kind of had this general concept and he was going to invent a machine to where he could look to the past and he enlisted all of the greatest minds of the world the whole world yes (gasps) he had the power of the vatican behind him he says oh and so he got enrico fermi who is a famous physicist. Yeah. Helped with creating nuclear power. And Werner von Braun, the rocket scientist. Uh-huh. It was brought over in Operation Paperclip and helped create NASA. I'm not sure why a rocket scientist would help with this, but it was well, probably two of the smartest names he had come up with. Interestingly enough, these are the only two people he would ever say were involved, and they were dead by the time he said it. How convenient. I mean, interesting. Come, Josephine, to my flying machine, he says, to Fermi and to Von Braun. And they get their rockets and their nuclear power, and they head over to the Vatican, and they make a teleportation device. No, it's a chrono-visor. Visor. visor. It's more like a TV. They make a TV. With all these fancy antennas. A TV with fancy... Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like something a crazy Uncle Dave would make. So he says, as he was talking to another priest, first of all, we want to verify that what we saw was authentic. So he started with a relatively recent scene of which we had much documentation and footage. We tuned the machine on one of Mussolini's speeches. How do you tune the machine? There's knobs and antennas. We started to go backward and observe Napoleon giving the speech in which he proclaimed Italy a republic. We then traveled much further back in time to ancient Rome. First, there was a bustling fruit and vegetable market in the time of Emperor Trajan. Next, a speech by Cicero, one of the most famous, the first delivered against Catalina, and goes on to account all sorts of things that he said. Okay, so they were doing stuff that was documented at first, which see, this seems like good scientific method for your chronovisor, like a good test. Sure, you can verify it. Is this always on in the Pope's office now? Like, does he just spend his days watching the chronovisor and presiding over world order? Maybe you say that'd be a great idea, but <laughs> the team voluntarily, according to Father Anetti, the team dismantled the chronovisor because they felt that in the wrong hands, the most fearsome dictatorship the world has ever seen could be created. I'm not sure I followed that logic. Well, if you could look in anywhere at any time, imagine you were the Russians and you could peer uh, into Russia. the Pentagon. Or Russia, yeah. No, it's got to be Russia. They were totally afraid of Russia. So I assume with these sort of claims, there has to be, right? Well, no one else ever saw the chronovisor. How convenient. I yeah, mean, very, interesting. Yes. And so there were a few things that he proffered as proof. And one of those was a play, Theestes, 
which was written by Quintus Aeneas, who was born 239 BC in Italy, and he's thought of as the father of Latin poetry. Not much of his writing is actually still around. And so what's around have, can't be intact, right? Right, small pieces. Okay. And so him being able to provide a script of this play, he felt was proofed. He said that he was able to tune in that's chronovisor. Watch mm-hmm. it. Write it all down. And so... Quality he, entertainment focuses. And he wrote about 120 lines down. They were all in Latin. Okay. And so, you know, when people started looking into this and linguists, they were like, it's only 120 lines and the Latin's all wrong. They're using Latin words that didn't exist at that time. Oh, those linguists. Those cunning, cunning linguists. And so he was very good at dismissing claims against him, so he just brushed that off. He said, if you had just seen it on the chronovisor, you would understand. And of course, being a priest, and all his fellow priests said, well, did you see Jesus? He said, of course we did. You know, we went back, we saw the Last Supper, we saw the crucifixion. Of course, goes on to say, it was, it was kind of hard to find the crucifixion, because, you know, there were a lot of people being crucified at the time, so we had to watch a lot of them. But he did... It's like it was on every channel, like the president. Can't watch CSI. He presented a picture of Jesus that he had taken while watching the chronovisor. So that seems legit, right? right? This, this got a lot of press. Someone noticed that looked kind of familiar. How familiar? It was a picture that was sold at the Sanctuary of Merciful Love in Italy. And the photograph showed a wooden carving of Jesus in the sanctuary by the Spanish artist Culat Valera. All it was was a picture of this in reverse. Well, at least he had the decency to reverse it. And so when this was brought up, he of course had a reply to it. He explained that he was aware of the other photo and that it was the work of a Spanish sculptor. He also knew that the Spanish sculptor had carved his Christ according to the instructions of a certain unnamed Spanish nun, and that this Spanish nun had been a mystic who carried the stigmata of Christ on her body and was consumed by ecstatic visions of Christ's passion. It was not Mel Gibson. Of course, somehow the sculptor and the photographer got the exact same, you know, lighting and contrast in the image. So it's hard to say if he went to his grave either believing this or holding on to this obvious lie. Priest lying like this. Can you believe a priest would ever lie? No. Uh, (laughs) Some people say that he did make a deathbed confession, but other people claim it was either forced or not even really true. When was he tuning in on his chronovisor? In the 50s. Yeah, so this is in the 1950s. Around the same time that Rudolph Fentz showed up. Yeah, maybe he saw it. Maybe he saw Rudolph Fence on his chronovisor. Yes, I wonder if he's the one. Maybe he's the one that started it. <laughs> he probably did. Conspiracy. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So, so far we have a time-traveling mid-Victorian. Who's it by taxi? As Victorians are wont to do when they see a taxi. We also have a priest who can visually time-travel. Uh-huh. And has seen, even seen Jesus on the cross. Lucky, lucky fellow. So do we have any other instances of time travelers? Do we have any other instances of time travel? All right, so let's continue with this web of conspiracy. I think I may have another link in the chain. Okay. The year is 1938. The setting, again, is Italy. And there's a brilliant young physicist named Ettor Madrulana. And he is working for Enrico Fermi. Who helped build the chronovisor. Right. He's a young physicist 
studying antimatter and matter as physicists do. And he disappears without a trace. Through time. Probably. I mean, odds are, right? This is a time travel show. But he leaves this note for his colleagues and friends. It says, I made a decision that has become unavoidable. There isn't a bit of selfishness in it, but I realize what trouble my sudden disappearance will cause you and the students. For this as well, I beg your forgiveness, but especially for betraying the trust, the sincere friendship, and the sympathy you gave me over the past months. I ask you to remind me to all those I learned to know and appreciate in your institute, especially Shuti. I will keep a fond memory of them, at least until 11 p.m. tonight, and possibly later, too. So at first, I think it sounds like a suicide note. Everyone thinks it sounds like a suicide note at until first. Until the last line. And possibly later, too. It's very cryptic. Yeah, so what happens after this note is left? There is a ticket purchased in his name going to Naples. He was on a very spur-of-the-moment trip to Sicily, where he hailed from, but no one thinks he was going to visit family. The whole thing was very odd. So he buys passage to Naples, but then no one ever reports seeing him in Naples, and he just falls off the face of the earth. No one knows what happened to this very brilliant man. Fermi is quoted as calling him a genius. He says he was, you know, as brilliant as Einstein, at least. So in around 2008... There's a man who calls in to a show that's like, I think it's called something like, I I swear I've seen him or I saw the man or something like that. And it's just kind of like strange accounts of meeting famous people. And he says that he knows this man, Ettore Majorana, and that he has a photo to prove it. That they knew each other in Argentina, where he had just lived out his days. That seems to put an end to it. If it's true, well, the Italian government said, we need to see that photo. And he said, sure, of course. So he sends the photo to the Italian government and they analyze this photo and using their whatever rubric they're using, the government officially believes that this is Ettore Majorana. So he just ran away a long time ago and is now living in Argentina. Well, I think he's dead now, no matter what happened. But he looks exactly the same. He hasn't aged a day in the photograph. And it was taken in 1958. 20 years later. So 20 years later, this man looks the exact same. You may say, oh, maybe he discovered the fountain of youth. Well, maybe, but I think it's more likely if we're going to conjecture, which I think we are, because that's why they pay us the big bucks. That would be zero dollars. That would be zero dollars. I think it's more likely that he did the thing he was always talking about doing and combined matter and antimatter and created a flash of energy and poofed himself to Argentina. Is there any basis in that thought, though? That's what he was studying. That was what his work was on. He was actively studying energy and time travel right before he disappeared. And reappeared looking not a day older. Did he finally leap home? Well, there are other people who say that maybe he was just, you know, working with the Nazis. Probably more likely than time travel. (laughs) Yeah, but then that leads to this terrible thought I had time-traveling Nazis. Next comic book. (laughs) Well, speaking of Enrico Fermi, Uh let's talk about our friend's comic book, The Manhattan Project. It's a sensational comic book. Which you should all take a minute. Go read. Pause. It's through Image. It's available online. Weird, right? Yeah. Artwork's awesome. (laughs) Yes, it is. 
True story. All right, back to the show. So, yeah, that's that's my physicist time travel story. Physicist time travel. So Enrico Fermi's involved in two of these. Right. So that's another link in the conspiratorial chain. Maybe Ettore Madrana has just been sitting back in the Vatican watching the chronovisor all these years. That's probably what was happening. Probably. So do we have any other great stories of time travel not involving physicists or priests? How about college professors? Sure. So, in 1901, there was a pair of ladies named Charlotte Ann Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain. And they were professors at Oxford's Women's University. And I believe they were a couple hmm. in 1901. So this is already going over like gangbusters, right? So they were taking a little getaway and they went to visit the Palace of Versailles. And while they were there, they took a wrong turn because, you know, women can't follow maps. And they ended up by some slip in time back in the year 1789. Did they look at a funny puppy calendar hanging on the wall of Versailles to figure out it was 1789? Uh, it was a sexy pinup girl calendar. Jeez, like, you know, show l- ladies showing some ankle. Cool. <laughs> All right. No, they used their context clues, right? These are very well-educated ladies we're talking about. So yeah, when they went back in time, they saw a lot of things that made them think it was back in the past. Right. They saw Swiss guards and an old plow. I don't know why that was important, but that was... there was a- no plow at the time in Versailles. And then they crossed a bridge that was not there anymore. And they met this man that had like a pockmarked face and dark curly hair who showed them into a small private garden, which apparently they spoke enough French to get by. And then they came upon a lady in a white summer dress with a great white hat and much fine hair. And she was sitting down sketching in a garden. And later they realized that must have been Marie Antoinette. Of course, who else would it be? I don't know. Who else do you run into at Versailles? One of the theories on this is that there was a group of homosexual men that did a lot of reenactments at this time. And that it could have been a cross-dressing man dressed as Marie Antoinette. Actually, when I was a kid, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me, I was in my friend's gazebo. My friend Amanda had this gazebo that went out on the lake. And we were standing there, and her property faces 18th century fort. And we see this man come out of the woods. And he's dressed in full regalia i mean like period clothing he's carrying a musket and then we see him take a plastic bottle and twist the lid off and drink from it and she and i are just both standing there looking in amazement and then he looks over at us and waves and then we realize he's a reenactor who's taking a break (laughs) just the same thing could have happened to this lovely couple vacationing in versailles right it very well could have now if i found out years later that it was a man in drag it would be that much better but it was just a guy So after this happened, they had to have wanted to tell everybody. So they wrote a book about it in 1911. But before that, they wrote letters to the Psychical Research Society. That sounds familiar. Are your little bells going off? Not your Catholic bells, your other bells? My previous podcast bells. Yes, they wrote the Psychical Research Society. And the Psychical Research Society deemed this a matter not worth study. And assumed that the ladies were probably just confused. Which is a theme we shall see continuing as people continue to 
try to figure out what happened. Right, people continue to look at this. You know, the psychical research is they probably added all these details later because whenever they started actually talking to each other, the two women realized their details did not match up very well at all. Right, and so people have gone back after the book An Adventure was published in 1911 and examined their correspondence and seen that it seems most of the corroborated details, the really striking ones, and the most formidable characters were all products of their discussions imagination via post and even one of their students wrote kind of a scathing analysis of this saying that it was kind of a shared delusion and they were caught up in their lesbian love affair a lesbian foiladu yeah take that with a grain of salt (laughs) yeah lesbian foiladu is going to be the name of my next rock band. So maybe they saw Marie Antoinette. I mean, they didn't have any reason to lie. They published this under a pseudonym. Their identities were not revealed until 1931. It wasn't like they were trying to gain fame. They weren't trying to further any cause. They really didn't have much of an agenda. But neither do people who blog. So Or podcast. Or podcast. <laughs> so another interesting time slip story. That is most likely concocted by the people that created it. But this has been gone on to be told for the last hundred years as truth. Such is the way of urban legends. Exactly. Sam, while we were reading all of these crazy stories, there's so many other stories online. There's the hipster time traveler. And the Charlie Chaplin cell phone. And John Titor. Rabbit hole worth jumping into. Yeah, Astonishing Legends did a really good episode on that one, so hit that up. So, as we're reading all of these crazy stories, can help discuss, is this real? Can we really time travel? And Sam, you were nice enough, you know, I've had a busy week in clinic, to take up the research on the science part of this episode. So you've been up like all night watching documentaries, reading. So what have you got for us? Is time travel real? Can we really do this? Okay. I don't have a definite answer. Despite my hours of research, I still can't give you a conclusive answer. Now, I'm not normally the one who takes on the more scientific, technical aspects of the podcast, but this is really interesting to me. And I found that there's a lot of quality material to engage with. Okay, you've got my interest peaked. I'm ready. Okay, so the first theory I came across has to do with a phenomenon called time dilation. Okay, I know about that. So, in the 1970s, there was a group of astronauts that were on a long journey and due to time dilation they realized that their journey which was supposed to have taken 18 months actually took 2,000 years and they found themselves on a planet that was inhabited by sentient apes apes Yes, and the lead astronaut named Taylor is one of the chief reporters. Taylor. Ta- Bright Eyes. Bright Eyes Taylor, it Ape. says here. Was he captured? Briefly. Did he say the line, you damn dirty apes? Possibly. Samantha. <laughs> That's Planet of the Apes. Possibly. Did you watch Planet of the Apes? Possibly. Okay, well, that is one of my favorite movies. The scientific basis of it is actually true. Time dilation is a real thing. Right, they were traveling close to the speed of light. Right, and so that is what it's about. So it's the theory of relativity. That's a thing. That's a real thing. That is a real thing. The theory (laughs) of special relativity by uh, Einstein. I know that guy. And so, He's in the Manhattan Projects. He is. 
Go read it. So according to Einstein's theory of special relativity, the passage of time is relative to an object's speed. So the more quickly an object moves through space, the more slowly time passes for the object moving closer to the speed of light. So compared to someone that was not moving at the speed of light, time would move much slower. So like in Planet of the Apes, to Charlton Heston's character, it would seem that a few years had passed when actually thousands of years had passed, and that's relative to the speed of light. So time moving more slowly for the observer is relative to the speed of light, or can also be related to gravity being affected by intense gravitational fields. And by your speed relative to light and relative to the other objects, you can age faster or more slowly. Okay, so that's why that one guy was disintegrated. So we do have real time travelers. Did you know that? Yes, like Taylor. So all of our astronauts are real time travelers. All of them? Yes. Did you see that on the Coronavisor? I did. And the astronauts that have been on the space station for the longest are our longest time travelers. So you can have a positive time shift where Earth's clock moves ahead of the travelers so they are younger than they would have been if they remained on Earth. They're not moving fast enough and they're not far enough away from the Earth to make a big difference. Uh-huh. Um, but Sergei Krikalev, which is a Russian who has spent the most time in space, is 0.02 seconds younger than he would have been if he'd stayed on Earth. Fountain of youth, guys. That's right. All you have to do is get really fast around the Earth, and you get an age piece of a second less. I knew it was real. But of course, as you move away from the Earth, you get a negative time shift. Earth's clock is falling behind the satellites, and that means they are older than they would have been if they remained on Earth. Well, that's a drag. Yeah, so if you take something like some of the satellites that have been out there for a long time, such as CINCOM-3, which was the first geostationary communication satellite, it's 0.85 seconds older than it would have been. Well, I don't know what we're doing all this theorizing about. Obviously, time travel can happen. We are 0.8 seconds away from seeing Marie Antoinette. All right, Sam, so that was Planet of the Apes. Okay. Got anything else? I do. So in 1995, there was a very brilliant physicist named Dr. Samuel Beckett. Okay. And he theorized that your life is a string. And if you were able to join the ends and the beginnings of the string, you create a loop, which is your lifetime. And if you take the string and ball it up, the different points of your life touch each other on different days. And using his quantum leap accelerator with the assistance of Al, he stepped into the accelerator and vanished. Did Dr. Sam Baggett theorize that one could time travel within his own lifetime and step into the quantum leap accelerator and vanish? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so did he wake to find himself trapped in the past facing mere images that were not not his own yeah (laughs) i did did you watch five seasons of this yeah i did (laughs) well i absolutely love quantum leap that's quantum leap the excellent 1980s television show if you haven't seen it pause (laughs) i don't know if you've seen the show but oh boy that's time travel right yeah definitely I, i mean it's definitely a leap, but you can see its relation to the closed time-like curves. So this is something that was theorized, again, around the same time as the theory of relativity. The, the world line of an object through space-time, 
So Einstein theorized that there's four dimensions, the three that we move around in, and also time, and that they were related. And that the world of an object through space-time follows a curious path where it eventually returns the exact same coordinates in space and time that it was at previously. So a closed time-like curve is like a mathematical result of physics equations that allow for time travel. String. Kind of like that. Ball. So you'd have to have the rotation of a really massive object to create this phenomenon and it's frame dragging. And actually drag space-time along with it. So in theory, you could set off in a spaceship and travel a path which brings you back to the exact same moment you started out at. But I have bad news for you. No Ziggy. You don't get a Ziggy. No Ziggy. No holograms. And Dr. Stephen Hawking says this kind of time Okay, he's made up too. I know he was on an episode of Star Trek. And there's a recent movie about him, but he's real. Ugh. He's not a cyborg, kind of. He proposed that there was a chronological protection conjecture. These are laws of the universe that would ultimately prevent any sort of possibility of time travel. Because he is a killjoy. I know. Because if you were to time travel, you were always meant to time travel. And you would not be able to change anything. Sorry, Dr. Beckett. Wait, no, I think that actually works with Quantum Leap. Because he was always meant to go back. Right. And he was always meant to make those changes. To put right <gasps> what went wrong. wrong. Yeah, exactly. So Stephen Hawking and Sam Beckett are obviously in cahoots, as Definitely. it were. All right, this is for entertainment. Yeah. Let me give you one more try, Sam. Okay. I have one word for you. Wormholes. Okay. That's a thing. It is a real thing. Okay, and they're created using red matter. Red matter? Mm-hmm. Where do you get red matter? Mm, from from the Romulans. Romulans? Ideally. I think there are other sources, but I think they have a controlling interest in red matter. So the Romulans? Mm-hmm. In space? Yes. Was Spock the one that got it? Yes. Yes, he was. I don't know how you know these things, but you do. Yes. Yes, Spock got the red matter, and then there was a wormhole. An artificial wormhole. And then, okay, so if that's not a thing, then if there was a stable wormhole, I theorize that you could set up a space station by it to guard it. And that if one were to open, like, a cantina on the space station, one would do really well. Would there be really bad guys on the other side? Well, obviously. And lots of spaceships? Yeah. Same that's Star Trek. It's two Star Treks. It is. It's the new Star Trek movie and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yes. You know Star Trek is a television show and not a documentary series. False. It's just not true yet. You're right. Maybe in the future, <laughs> maybe in a closed time loop curve, eventually get there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it's like, and just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it's not like a maybe thing, Maybe right? Gene Roddenberry had access to the chronovisor and could look into the future. Yes. I mean, I think it's obvious. I think Gene Roddenberry and Lucille Ball parceled off to the Vatican together, watched the chronovisor, took notes, and spun out the Star Trek universe. So maybe that's what happened. But wormholes are a real thing. And they've become science fiction fodder. But they were originally proposed by, again, Einstein. Einstein Rosenbridge. The Einstein Rosenbridge. I knew a real thing. That's from Fringe. Yeah, Fringe. Uh, it was an interstellar. Did a really great job kind of sticking as close to one can to the science of things related to stuff like this. And of course, they had Thorne to help them, who is a great physicist that was one of Carl Sagan's buddies. Einstein Rosen proposed that a stable wormhole could exist. In Deep Space Nine. In theory, one could travel 
through because it'd be warping space and time and you'd be able to get to another location in space and time. So this is fourth dimension travel. Right. And so if you... What is a wormhole? So wormhole, it would be a gateway between space and time forming two separate locations together. But a stable wormhole would have to be supported by some sort of exotic material with negative mass, kind of antimatter. Something that, but that's something that we have never seen before. Uh, Maybe Atori Majorana saw it on the chronovisor. Could have been. And so the only way that you could really have this immense warping of space time, other than with red matter, would be with a black hole. With black holes being the source of destruction in the universe, sucking everything in its gravitational wake, it'd be very hard to get into a black hole. Would it be be, hard to get into a black hole, or would it be hard to get out of a black hole? It'd be hard to get out of a black hole. You would be strung out like a piece of spaghetti, a spaghetti effect. Flying spaghetti monster. That's probably where he lives. Okay, it makes sense to me. People have theorized that you could have something called a care singularity, which would be a transversible wormhole. And this would be a wormhole that was ring-like, so using its gravitational So a ring fields, wormhole? Yes, exactly. Okay. Using its ring-like gravitational fields, it would balance those forces, and but there would not be those gravitational forces in the middle of it. And if you could get to the oh, middle, okay. you could travel through a wormhole. So you go through a black hole, and you go out of a white hole. A black hole being black because it sucks everything in, including light, and a white hole being white because it emits everything that came into the black hole, okay, including white light. In theory, if somehow you can create a spaceship, find a care singularity, which no one has ever found, and travel... It's like a donut? It's like a... It's like a donut. Okay. And travel through the middle of the donut into the wormhole, you could come out in some other space, time, of course you wouldn't... We have no clue to know if this would work or where you'd end up. Like 2001. And so, interestingly enough, extremely recent research, like this month, came out from the Lagos Observatory proving some of these theories of Einstein showing gravitational waves being produced when two black holes merged. That's very interesting. So, you know, in a few thousand years, we'll have time travel. Awesome. Come back and listen to their podcast. Support funding of NASA. All right, Sam, so we've got three theories about how we would time travel, all based on movies and television shows. I'm not sure if you really did your research on this. It depends on what you call research. I have another one. What? Okay, so in the 80s, oh God, Dr. Emmett Brown believed that if one could procure plutonium... From Libyan nationalists? Preferably. And put that on a DeLorean and go 88 miles an hour, 1.21 gigawatts, bam, time travel. Okay, that's just Back to the Future. There's really, the hot tub. There's, oh, no, that's hot tub uh, time machine. B- 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 big blue box. Doctor Who? Uh, phone booth. Bill and Ted, are you serious? What have you been doing? <laughs> I watched a lot of movies. I'm glad you've used your time wisely. Our children haven't eaten in three days. <laughs> I thought I could go back and fix it. So, time travel is the stuff of science fiction. Bigger on the inside, what? And it's 
super fun to think about. That's why there's so many great movies and television shows using it as a great story device. There's also urban legends using it as bringing us these amazing stories of people that have gotten to experience things they never would through using time travel. We have lots of physicists working very hard to try to figure out the mechanisms of time and space and if we can ever time travel. But would you time travel if you could? I would absolutely time travel if I could, as evidenced by my continuous referencing of popular media in this podcast. I love time travel stories. They're my favorite kind of science fiction. And every time I hear time travel, all I can think about is like all the events that I would want to go back and watch and like the people I would meet if I could, like if I could just put myself in their path. Like I want to have a mint julep with Mark Twain on the steamboat and I want to go back and watch the painting of the Sistine Chapel and hear all the cursing that must have accompanied it as paint dripped in his eyes and I you know I want to I want to go see I want to see the things that are long gone and my five-year-old self wants to go back and see the dinosaurs maybe I'll bring our five-year-old to go see them as well (laughs) who doesn't want to see dinosaurs the prevailing thought do most people want to time travel if it really existed? You know, everyone says, oh, you know, why don't we have jetpacks? It's the 2000s. And also, you know, like in 1995, we should have the quantum leap accelerator. We should have the time machine by now. Marty McFly has already traveled back. Yeah. A few months ago and seen Jaws 3D and, and gotten a hoverboard. Are other people want to do this? I think there was actually a study done by the Pew Research Institute asking people about if they would like to time travel or not. And the general consensus among younger people was sure. And the general consensus around older people was nah. To me, that's odd. You would think that older people would want to travel more. Right. Well, even though you and I seem to have a more fantastical, maybe media-informed idea of what time travel is, it seems like a lot of people, when they hear the word want to go back and fix things that have gone wrong within their own lives. So they would want to go back and fix that mistake they made, tell that person not to date that guy, to not get in on that business deal. And like a lot of people want to go back and give their younger selves advice because younger selves are so open to listening to advice. And one researcher that was involved in this, Keys Johnson, thinks that maybe it's because when people hear, would you like to go back in time, they go straight to the unhappiest moment of their lives and think about how they would change it. And the older people get, the more of these moments they accrue, the more of these unfortunate, sad moments become part of their lives. If they dwell on them, it becomes impossible to function. And so the idea of going back in time is going back to these bad moments over and over again and that's why older people are more averse to it so younger people might have more fantastical ideas like we do possibly older people can only think of their past and their past mistakes well i mean i think it's a gross generalization to say that on this american life a couple of researchers were asking around uh, after the study was published and they went up to older people and ask them about time travel. And at first the people would be like, no, I'd never want to time travel. And then they'd sit there a few minutes and they'd be like, I might like to see some dinosaurs. 
the longer you allowed people to sit with it, the more open they became. And like when the idea was removed from going back to places within their own life, when it became more abstract, people became more open to the idea. So maybe when we're able to start looking past ourselves and our past mistakes, we start seeing that there could be some fun and fantastical adventures related to this. And who doesn't want a good fantastical adventure? So are you, um, are you going to time travel? Sure. As soon as it's not just a story? Sign me up for the next trip. 